welcome to another episode of the SEMA Development Podcast. I'm Mike, I'll be hosting today. We are going to be talking about code cleanliness and organization and the importance of that. Let's go ahead and introduce the other people who are here today. David, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm David Solano. And I've been here in Asima for a little bit more than a year, basically programming Ruby on Rails. I would love to talk about this important subject. Great. Ramses, want to introduce yourself? Howdy, everyone. I am Ramses, uh, primarily a Rubyist, a uh, little bit of JavaScript as well. So I'm excited to be in this discussion. Eddie, you want to introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. All of these things are including me. As I said, I'm Eddie. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Let's introduce our topic a little bit. I've been thinking about a good way to introduce this topic. I wanted to start with a story and talk a little bit about my wife. She is an organizer. Let me clarify that. There are a lot of people who like to have things organized. You know, it's like something that they like. That's not what I'm talking about. My wife treats organization as a science. <laughs> she doesn't just think, oh yeah, I like to have things organized. She treats it almost professionally. When she comes into an area of a home or, or building and wants to make use of it, she looks at the space, thinks about like the shape of the space, and thinks about it in great detail, does research, her mind just gets gets cranking and figures out the ideal way to organize the space so that it's it's most useful. She's taken classes, she follows prominent organizers, there's such a thing, since like before they were popular, it's like a, a thing she's brilliant at. A lot of background, I mean, this spills over in other areas where she'll come up with better ways to do things, like an algorithm for solving a problem that's uh, slow, she'll think, well, why don't you do it this way? Like, oh yeah, that's better. But just on a, on a very small scale, we have a pantry where we store stuff near our kitchen. We'd buy stuff for years and throw stuff in there, and it just went there to die. <laughs> it, it wasn't very well organized. There was food in there that we liked to eat, but it would end up tucked behind something, and we'd forget about it. And we'd end up buying the same thing a while later, forgetting that the original stuff was there. And then we'd go clean out like, oh, wait, this has gone bad. It was never very useful. So my wife thought about that, did her planning that I talked about that, got an appropriate set of containers, put in shelving, arranged the pantry so that everything that is in there is in, and you know, we had to decide what we we're going to put in there. <laughs> There's some things that didn't get a go. And everything that is in there is in an appropriately sized container that is labeled and highly visible on a shelf. There's no too deep anywhere. And smaller th things we use less of are in smaller containers. There's some shelving on the inside of the door as well that nests in so it fits perfectly. It's kind of amazing, honestly. <laughs> but the interesting thing is you can't just throw stuff into the pantry anymore. But we use it far more than we ever did before. Although it takes a little bit of time to make sure everything's put in the appropriate bins, it's immediately obvious. You walk in there, you know in a moment where the thing that you want is. And we use it multiple times a day. That's where we go for a lot of our food because it just works so well. There's several interesting things that I've, I've learned about from this. The organization isn't just about convenience. It fundamentally changes the way that something can work. This area went from like a place that we occasionally used for things we thought, oh yeah, I need to put long-term storage in here to kind of a fundamental extension to our kitchen and where most of the stuff that we actually cook with is because that organization allowed us to use it differently. I think that code being so abstract, it's easy to, to misunderstand or to just not be able to think about it very easily. And having these parallels in the physical world allows us to understand better that, hey, wait, there's something to be said about that. Because when we're writing code, we run into a lot of the similar constraints. When we have code that we've just kind of 
thrown stuff together and allowed it to build over time, which is the easiest way to let things happen. I mean, it's kind of how a code usually goes if you're not very conscientious about it. Then you end up with a structure that's kind of formed ad hoc and it gets harder and harder to work with. And it's not just a small thing where like superficially hard, like, yeah, that's kind of not aesthetically pleasing to me, but it makes it less and less useful. You accumulate what we call you know, technical debt, which is doing something quickly now that you'll have to pay back later. It can actually accumulate to the point where it's very hard to get anything done because it's really hard to tell when you make a change, whether it'll have ripple effects somewhere else in the code that's really hard to understand because you can't see it. You can't wrap your head around it. I've got other stories I could tell, but I, I wanted to start with that one to kind of set the stage for our discussion. I think you uh, bring up a interesting point. When the code is uh, organized well, it makes it easier to think about and easier to find things. Like in a, a pantry that's disorganized, back to your analogy, if it is disorganized, it's hard to find things and you often uh, buy the same thing even though you already have it and it's perfectly usable. Oh, I'm thinking about times I've had to navigate messy code and tried to find something. <laughs> I have absolutely seen people rewrite code that does the same thing as code that was already there because yeah. uh, they couldn't find it. This just reminds me like when I started coding, there was no standards, uh, at least in the project that I was. So I was just writing code, writing code. At the end, everything was working. Six months later, when you have to go back to make a change or something, it yeah. was extremely difficult because you probably have forgotten about it. When you take a look at it, it's like, oh my God, who did this? Oh, it was me, but I don't remember now. <laughs> and it's working, but why did I do it in this way? Nowadays, it's, for example, people which is training in, in projects like Asima, which uh, have standards and we follow a code review process. We guarantee that new code uh, it follows uh, good standards and it's uh, probably a, a little bit more easier to organize. That doesn't mean that maybe we're, we're going to switch later to a team that needs to deliver faster. I've also been there where from on teams that there's one team which has time to build code in a proper way, another team that they just deliver. It doesn't matter how you write it. Try to write as good as you can, but just write your code and try to deliver as fast as, 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 as the client requests. And as you mentioned, add a tech debt ticket to work on this later for the other team. But unfortunately, those things sometimes has a little bit more complexity to the code. I believe it's something that we need to avoid. That's interesting. One team that does a bunch, the other team that cleans up. Do you think that that actually ends up going faster in the long run? One team that just tries to go fast, another team cleans up? No. <laughs> it will definitely add more time to the other team, especially if they need to do a change of something. Yeah. There's some choices that you can make, shortcuts you can take in the code that might save a little time in implementing it in the short term, maybe. But in the long term, make it much slower because it's harder to work with. And sometimes very small changes that have big impacts for years afterward. I believe strongly that taking a little bit more time to do it better up front usually doesn't take more time. 
share a recent story. I won't go into deep details of the project. There's a team that was trying to get a project done quickly. And I thought, well, you know, this is so urgent. We don't really have the time to coordinate and get all of the names in common and, and just names, right? Making sure that we're on the same page of what things should be called. We're not going to get all that straight ahead of time because we just need to get going. So we just need to just get coding. And several months later, after implementing it the third time, <laughs> they finally got it out after having coordinated and gotten all, getting all, gotten all the names straight because the process of trying to get things working across teams when they didn't have the contracts well-established and those boundaries well-understood meant that they didn't match. And it was kind of a disaster. <laughs> and doing it the way that uh, should have been done in the first place actually worked. Luckily, we don't have a, uh, a habit of doing things that way around here. It was, it was anomalous, but it was kind of eye-opening to see that uh, you know, this one project, that they tried to rush it. It didn't work. It didn't work. And that's just a single example. If you build your code that way for years, and I've been a number of places over time, and I've seen code that just accreted things on top of the mess more and more and more, and just shovel it onto the pile. It may save a small amount of time uh, front, but oftentimes it doesn't even save you time then. It can take more time to try to take the shortcut than to do it the long way. Anybody's like in the real world tried to take a shortcut has likely found that oftentimes the shortcut actually takes longer. <laughs> it works that way in software too. Have you all had that experience? Probably I've mentioned this in, in other podcasts. I'm not sure, but there was one big function, extremely big, that take like I don't know, hours to finish, it needed to be completed in minutes because we needed to run it on the night so we don't affect any client. But we need to do some changes there. The function was so extremely confused to understand and to and to fix it that we decided to just drop it and start one from, from you know, just understanding the business logic and created a new one following good standards. And uh, once we finish it, from hours to finish, it just took like minutes. It still was heavy, but the approach we followed was to just build it from scratch because it was so difficult to understand. There was so much business logic there that it was just better to do it from scratch than to try to fix something that is already too tight. And did you even rebuild it with performance in mind or did you just rebuild it and it worked? Oh, no, we, we built it with performance in mind because uh, we, we took a look at some of the ways they were doing some cycles in the in the code and they were performing like a lot of queries to the database uh, instead of just pulling like one amount of records first, work on them and then pull some other records later. They were just pulling one, one record. They had the M plus one. <laughs> problem uh, a lot of times there. Uh, so yeah, we thought in performance first. And we also thought on, on something which I have mentioned sometimes uh, in architecture meetings. We, we thought of building a guide uh, about how this process works because all the business logic was in the code, but it was spread across multiple people. So you have to ask someone from legal, someone from, I don't know, uh, who works with the clients to know why this process works in this way, um, someone from other department to know why this process works in this way. So we gather all that information and we build some guide first. So we documented everything 
and then we managed to code uh, the function again. And after we code it in a proper way, there was already a guide, uh, some documentation that you can first read and understand from like a lecture. And then you can go and take a look at the code and you'll see, oh, now this makes more sense. So we did these two approaches, which I think was a good approach in order to do that. I uh, talk about refactoring something for performance. I was involved in a project a number of years ago. I was working for a company built a CMS at the time, content management. And we had code that would display advertisements. But the CMS we provided was, the company is defunct now, so probably talk about it. But the was for primarily newspapers, newspapers, magazines, other publishers who were moving online. And sometimes they'd work with advertisers. So we had to have our own ad network. And mostly we worked with external ad networks, but we also you know, had our own like in-house ad network at the time uh, so that these publishers could run ads from their local merchants. You know, a car dealership, for example, might want to advertise on the site and we had support for that. And we noticed that the serving of ads, because there's a lot of them on a page, was more than half of all of our database load. And just our overall time in our application, more than half of it was to serving these ads, which seemed really excessive given that uh, the ads were relatively simple. And you know, <laughs> there's all the work of publishing the articles and showing all of that content, but the ads ended up dominating that. So we extracted that code out and just built it from scratch in a, in a really small microservice. It really didn't do very much. It just was very focused on delivering the ads and that's it. And once we had that built and took it out of the primary app, it went from being most of our database load to being almost unmeasurable. It was just one or 2%, I think. It was an insignificant part of our load. Just cleaning it up, just cleaning up the code, getting it out into its own place where you could see it and think about it made a tremendous difference. And then we basically forgot about it because it just worked. Yeah, that sounds great. I wanted to bring something that we are talking about cleanliness. I'm not a big fan of unit tests, <laughs> but I know they are pretty good in order to ensure that your code works as expected. Um, and this is something that I found on this process of knowing how to code in a better way. If you find that your unit tests, in this case, for our, our specs, if you found that your code is getting a bit more complicated to test, that means that maybe your code is not coded in the proper way and you are adding more than you need there. So this is something that I actually use to ensure that I'm writing something that other people can understand and that I'm doing it in a, a proper way too. Because I've been there that I'm trying to test something that is just not possible to test in the same class. And you know, oh, maybe I need to move this code to another class because it's, it makes a completely different thing. So yeah, I, I believe unit tests are a good tool to write better code, uh, a clean code. And I think this is something that here we can, I mean, we have good examples here because we have been uh, cleaning the, the current aspects we have writing here in, in, in our project. And I don't know, the other guys can tell me they have found it, but I have seen some examples where trying to test the code is hard sometimes because maybe we could have done a bit better of the way 
we did that class or something like that. But yeah, I think unit test is just amazing in order to ensure that you are making a an easier code or a cleanest code to save some help. I think that's a fantastic point. Well, unit tests have several things that they are good for. Sometimes what their primary value is is not what you think that their primary value is. <laughs> I'll put it that way. You think, well, I just want to verify that my code is correct. And unit tests are good at that. But if you've thought through your code wrong, you're likely to think through it wrong on your test as well. So you're testing that your code does what you expect it to do, which was not what you should have done in the first place. Tests can actually be, be misleading in that regard. But there are some things they're very good at, like allowing you to refactor and make sure your code isn't broken. And what you just said is a tremendous one, I think. It's a tool, an instrument. It gives you visibility into your code quality. If your code is easy to test, then that suggests that it's easy to think about because your tests are kind of like an external observer. And if your code is, is really easy to test, just go down this branch, go down this branch, test both of them, everything's good. You know, that's a really good sign that your code is good. And if your code is really hard to test, then you probably have too much going on, right? I'm with you 100%. It's an excellent indicator. Ramses or Eddie, do you, do you have any thoughts about using tests to kind of force yourself to keep your code clean? So I can see the, the, like the more in-depth I get into picking up tickets and breaking um, unit testing, I'm, I'm starting to see the benefit on why we have them. If you test with QA and unit testing, like you're ensuring that the ticket or the, the dev ticket that you picked up and you're deploying to master is working the way it's intended, right? <clears throat> so not only are you testing the code, but you're also testing the UI side of stuff. So I do see the benefit behind it. It can be quite stressful to wrap your head around at first, but uh, I do see the benefits on unit testing for sure. Another thing that got mentioned, I think somebody mentioned it. I think you mentioned it, David, but it maybe you just said something that made me think about it, but I think you mentioned it. You talked about, I believe, RuboCop, which is what we call the linter. It's also a static code analysis tool. We have those across languages. That A linter is a tool that checks your code syntax and makes sure that it's clean. Uh, static code analysis goes a little bit further and does some, well, analysis on your code to check whether it has some security vulnerabilities or whether it has some complexity it just does some some kind of broader tests and the boundary is a little bit fuzzy between those two a really sophisticated linter might start going into some of the static code analysis and um, a purely static code analysis tool might actually have some linting built in as well but these these related tools that they exist in in a lot of languages and i didn't use those early in my career and now that I do use them, I think that they are fantastic. I, and I say I didn't use them. I didn't use them as much. I'll say that. I don't think I've ever completely gone without using those kinds of tools, whether your IDE makes some suggestions and or I would run, you know, certainly there's compiling or I'd run syntax checks. Now that these tools are more broadly available, I love them. Uh, RuboCop in the Ruby world, because it takes the job of enforcing consistency out of the hands of, of your peers. So your peers don't have to nag at you and say, oh, you forgot to indent here. Instead, you can together come to a standard and usually use a community standard. It says, this is how we're going to do it. And you all agree that you're going to do it that way. And now you don't have to think about it. Now, everybody 
is coding to the same standard. And generally it's it's enforcing best, not just kind of arbitrary choices, like how far should you indent, <laughs> resolve the tab versus space arguments <laughs> and by just not having them, whatever uh, linter you're using is gonna make the choice for you and then you don't have to have the argument. But it's a lot, it goes further than that. It means that because you're not having those disagreements over, I'll come back to the idea of a bike shed. Um, you're not having disagreements over irrelevant things. You can actually talk about relevant things in your reviews. When you have a, one of your peers reviewing your code, they are not thinking about how distracted they are by some syntax somewhere, because they don't have to. They get to think about uh, structure and whether it actually solves the problems that it's intended to solve. And that's a much better thing to be thinking about. It's much better discussions to be having. They're much more fruitful and likely to lead to better changes than just making some superficial changes. Come back to the idea. There's a widespread idea in, in software about bike shedding. And the idea that it's as a verb, you bike shed <laughs> as a verb. And where that verb comes from is the idea is you build like a, something very complicated, like a nuclear power plant. People in the community are really not gonna share an opinion as to what the design of the reactor is going to be because they don't have the expertise to make that kind of choice. There's going to be a few people who have that expertise who will you know, evaluate the parameters and come to a decision. So it's a very important decision. It will have decades-long impact, but only a few people will, will participate. But if you build a, a shed out front to keep bikes dry when people go up to, to park at the facility and you ask what color it should be painted, you'll have long, maybe months-long arguments and debates of people expressing their opinion as to what color that shed should be painted. And the idea here is that the debate over something is usually inversely proportional to how important it is. The more important a decision is, the less likely it is to be debated. And linters help with that problem because they remove that lengthy discussion over irrelevant topics. And what color should be painted? Well, it's, it's always going to be black. And you don't have to make that decision. In the end, that decision didn't matter very much. It frees your mind to talk about the more important things. It's an aspect of code cleanliness, keeping your syntax clean, that I, I think is fundamentally important. You can't understand code very well if it's a mess, but you can solve that by using an automated tool to tell you how to do it and then do it that way. Yep, I totally agree. And I'm glad you broke this, uh, Mike, about RuboCup. <laughs> I still have, I also have a story about that. So when I started coding and I was introduced to RuboCop, I was angry <laughs> because yeah. it was, yeah, it was like highlighting all my errors in the code. Was like, Who invented RuboCop? I was so angry. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course, I was I was a junior and and I I was I mean, in those times I was thinking that I was right uh, the way I was writing code. And then I realized that, no, this is actually a good tool because it provides you uh, a better way to do things. And it also ensures that other people that is going to, which is the most important thing uh, also, if other people is going to change your code, uh, at least it follows a standard there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty good tool. And this is something that I'm glad that Rui has. So RuCup is one of those. And I, will, I also wanted to mention another one, which is uh, Rails best practices, uh, which also allows you to follow some good practices in Rails. 
So this is, this is just great in order to talk about important topics, as you mentioned, in your code, and not only maybe the way you just coded something that a tool is already going to provide you with a fix, right? With highlighting the error and using it in a proper way. So yeah, I'm glad we use those tools here in Nasima. You know, some languages even take that. Languages with syntactic white space, like Python, for example. They structured the whole language to enforce certain conventions. So you, you, know, you can't argue with it. Your code won't work unless you write it cleanly. And I mean, that doesn't solve all problems, but it does solve some. And there's proponents and detractors of that idea out there. Not everybody loves it, but there's a reason that people would have that idea and, and push it forward because it's just so important to have that consistent syntax to be able to work together as a team that it's worth having it baked in the language where you can't even get your code to run unless you follow that standard. There's a reason that people would build something that way. Whether or not you think that you should do it that way, it suggests that there's enough value that some people have considered doing it that way. Yeah, definitely. And this also saves time, right? And I wanted to mention this because last time we had our weekly meeting, so we mentioned that no one is going to code review your code if you don't ensure that rule code passes. <laughs> and this is something good, right? Because it also, it, it's a, a team standard and it also ensures you that you're going to present some code that follows the team standard and that follows the rules that RuCop currently has. So this is something really good. I agree with you on that. If you're not used to doing it that way, it can sound like, wow, that's that's a pretty strict rule. You won't even review my code if it's not doesn't have clean syntax. I'd say the opposite is true. If you don't have a rule like that, then you're forcing the reviewer to have to make comments like, hey, I don't like the way this is structured. It doesn't really follow the standards you are coercing your peer into evaluating parts of your code that it shouldn't be their job to have to review. Why should they have to enforce community standards when that can be automated? It's kind of silly <laughs> and arguably kind of rude that you would ask somebody else to do work that you could have automated. It's part of, I think, taking pride in your code, being a, a craftsperson, to be willing to just take that little extra time to make sure that you follow the standards. I agree. A uh, few years ago, we didn't implement it. We didn't implement this Rookup in one of our projects. And we, the devs, spent like a lot of time just trying to have our team standards there. Like, hey, make a breakpoint here. Uh, this is a new line. Uh, oh, no, do an end instead of create brackets in here. And all that time could have been saved if we have used Rookup because we used to have like, 20 comments per review. <laughs> and that was just a lot. Something that Rookup could have just fixed it in a couple of minutes or seconds, actually. And you can integrate that into your editor. And then you don't even think about it because you get syntax highlighting. It mm -hmm. says, hey, your code is not following the standard here. Uh, oh, I learned to see from a long ways off in my editor. Oh, I, I know exactly what's going on there. It's just got the underline or the color, you know, saying, hey, something's going on here. I know even without having, you know, hovered over to see what the message is, I know exactly what the problem is because like, oh, yeah, I bet that that's saying I haven't added a comment on my class to say what it does. 
or uh, I bet that's saying my line's too long, or, you know, so on. He's, you end up internalizing it to where you do it without even thinking about it, which is great. So let's see. We've talked about how messy code takes longer to work with and may not even save you time to make the mess in the first place. We have talked about the value of following standards. We've talked about the value of sometimes refactoring and and starting over from scratch and building something clean because it saves you more time than trying to fix code that is so messy that it's unsalvageable. I think there's some other interesting questions here. Uh, one interesting one, I think, is how do you start a project clean? How do you start it with standards such that you avoid a lot of these problems up front? You're never going to avoid all the problems. Just by natural growth, I think any system is going to develop parts that are more complex than other parts. And in that natural progression, you'll notice, hey, this part has is, is become more complex than it was initially. And I need to go in and refactor it. So I don't think you can universally avoid problems and just naturally some things are going to be more complex than others. However, I do think that you can avoid a lot of the worst pitfalls by starting off with good standards and good structure. I have some thoughts on this, but I'm curious what you all think. I like the idea of clean code. For example, um, the concept of self-documenting code is really important, um, especially to me when I'm viewing a file for the first time, right? And I think that the code should be describing what the code intends to do by itself without the need of like following the syntax per se, right? I think the Ruby syntax really aids in that as well because it reads in English, but having the code do the talk for you, right, is really important. Uh, that's an interesting, you know, we've talked about things we can use to kind of measure whether the code is good or not. Like you say, if you read the code and it looks like English, and you know, reads like prose. The code itself reads like documentation. That's a good sign that it's well-organized and easy to understand. And if you have to stop and think about it, or if you have to have a lot of comments to explain it, maybe you've done it in a way that is not easily thought about. And it'd be better to, to reorganize that. As David was saying, that person that comes back and doesn't understand it is likely to be you six months from now, or maybe one month from now <laughs> sometimes. Future you is not going to remember current you very well. And it's going to come try to figure out what current you was doing and, and wish that you had been more conscientious. Or having like easy to understand names. <laughs> like that's really, really, really important. I think we could have a whole session on that one. Um, but I think it's funny that as developers, we'll sometimes like think we're saving time by dropping a few characters in a variable name. Like, oh, I'm not going to leave, put these characters in there because I want to save those, you know, three characters of typing, which takes you some fraction of a second. But then when you come back and try to think about the problem, you have to figure out what that variable name is. And it takes you several seconds every time you look at it. What time have you saved? I think you almost never save time by coming up with abbreviations because they force you to have to think more about it. And that thinking about it takes a lot more time than the trivial amount of time it takes to type a couple more characters. It, I mean, we've got good tools for input. You know, even if you have some, uh, like, you know, I, I sometimes get uh, some, you know, repetitive stress of it, and I don't want to be banging away on the keyboard all the time. And despite that, I think variable names should be long <laughs> because it just doesn't add very much to write a few more characters to make your names easy to read. And I asked my question uh, that I was asking before a little bit again. How do you get the standards from the beginning? I'm going to make some suggestion 
there that in most cases, it makes sense to go with some sort of community framework rather than thinking, oh, I'm just going to start things from scratch and put it together as, uh, as it goes. I want it to grow organically. Well, okay, things do grow organically, but people who garden put up a trellis for their climbing vines because they want to give them an opportunity to grow and not just sprawl out across the ground. This idea that things growing should not be restricted at all, I think is, is misguided. Things grow better when given an opportunity to climb up a structure toward the sky. And if we give them that structure to begin with, then things will grow organically to fill in the space that you provided for them. And if you don't provide them that space, then they'll hit those constraints very quickly. And you're going to have to rebuild it and rebuild it and rebuild it and create those constraints over time, which is much harder than adding some constraints up front. And specifically, I think it makes sense to say, well, this is where these kinds of files go. In some languages, you're not going to have as much opportunity there, but almost everything you're going to work in is going to have some sort of framework. And then you can think about architecture. Well, what if I, I'm going to use model view controller architecture? So I'm going to have my data layer over here, and I'm going to have my logic layer here, and I got my presentation layer over here. Taking the time upfront to separate those ideas, to separate that code and organize it is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. And that's why frameworks are popular. <laughs> also, they do a lot of the work, the lifting for you. But the convention, I think, is, is um, a convention, the code conventions, this is where you put things, is sometimes underappreciated as a vital part of what those frameworks provide you. It's not just the libraries they provide, which are invaluable, but it's also the structure. I totally agree with that. I've tried to create a few projects in the late months, like just for fun. So I like the fact that when you're going to start a new project, the language itself or the framework itself provides you with the tools, as you mentioned, in order to code better. I don't want to start to go with in details, but for example, in with React, if you try to use React, sometimes they enable the aslint, I think is, is the name it is called. So if you make some syntax errors or, or just, just code in, in some weird way, you will highlight the error and your code won't compile. <laughs> and that's good because uh, you probably get a little frustrated at the beginning, but at the end, you will be glad that it highlighted that error there because in the future will save you, definitely. In the case of Ruby, I do agree that when you're going to start like a Ruby or Ruby Rails project, you should add these valuable gems we talk about, like Rubicop, it's one of them. Bullet is another one, right? Uh, which will highlight you the N plus one error or how your queries are being done in the database. So yeah, I think that's a, a good approach. Use everything the frameworks provide in order to code better and clean. I'm with you. <laughs> a bullet is a nice tool, as you say. It uh, looks for things you do with the database that you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I have said this sometimes. <laughs> a lot of times, to be honest. Great. I think that we're reaching the end here, the, the time we're going to spend. Does anybody have any final thoughts that they've been holding in they'd like to share about the code cleanliness and organization. I just wanted to close that uh, having team standards is extremely valuable in projects because they let you grow up as a developer and also as a person because you will understand the way the team 
works and the way you should also think if you go into that team. That also provides or, or gives you a way of knowing how mature a team is and hearing axiomats on something that we actually have. And we have changed our standards too. I mean, we have had few meetings where we'll talk about like, why don't we change this in this other way? And we come to an agreement and it is good for the team, we change it. And so this is something great that a team should have. And it's something that it is so valuable because it will help you code better will help you understand more the way the code is done and also the way the team works. I just want to highlight that over there and finish with that line. So again, said it wonderfully. <laughs> Those team standards just make such a difference. Maybe I conclude here by tying back to where we started, the uh, idea of organization. They say, we should all be more like my wife <laughs> and treat organization not just as uh, as an aesthetic concern like i like the way this looks but realize that it's it's a fundamental characteristic of something that is easy to use and that is maintainable in the long term take some time to learn some of that science of some of the process that is involved in creating good structure good hygiene good cleanliness in our code so that we can maintain our software into the future Take the time to develop those team standards because it's worth it. It's been great talking and I'll see you next time on our Asima Development Podcast.